Okay, uh, welcome to you all for this uh, book event. Uh, my name is Mac Owens. I'm the Dean of Academics here at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, give a little commercial first. For those who are not familiar with IWD, uh, we are a independent graduate school of national security affairs. Uh, we have uh, three full master's degrees. We have uh, professional and uh, executive master's degrees, and we have 18 certificates in national security uh, affairs. Um, we do a lot of events, and uh, we're pleased to have uh, Paul Miller uh, with us today. Paul is the associate director at the Clement Center for National Security Affairs, national security affairs at the University of Texas. Um, now, I'm a little, he's invited me to come down to Austin. Uh, I had to ask his uh, secretary. I actually went to Texas A&M for a while. And my question is, do I need a special pass to get into Austin? That's uh, we do here. Uh, so again, he, uh, he is the Associate Director at the uh, Clement Center. He is a Distinguished Scholar with the Strauss Center for International Security and Law. Uh, associated with the uh, Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. And he's a lecturer at the LGT School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas as well. Uh, as a practitioner, uh, Dr. Miller served as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff in 2007-2009. He worked as an intelligence analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency 2003-2007 and served as a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army, including a deployment to Afghanistan in 2002. Uh, Dr. Miller has taught at National Defense University. He's worked for the RAND Corporation. Uh, he, his first book was called uh, Armed State Building, published by Cornell in 2013. And uh, the book we're talking about today, American Power and Liberal Order, a Conservative Internationalist Grand Strategy, is published by Georgetown. I'd like to point out that uh, one of the reasons I like his work is it's very close to uh, what I think, so I would agree. That's always very important. Uh, I happen to call mine sort of a prudent American, uh, a prudent American uh, realism, but it's the same sort of um, thing. I think his name is better. Uh, Dr. Miller uh, blogs at uh, Shadow Government Foreign Policy, right? That's the and they've actually just changed the name. It's now Elephants in the Room. No. Okay. No. And by the way, it's a very good company. I mean, there's a lot of really good folks who do that. But uh, if you uh, want to go to the Foreign Policy uh, website and look on that, there are always interesting uh, things to be said, his especially. Um, he's, uh, his writings have uh, appeared in a number of journals, including one that I edit, Orbis, but uh, his, uh, his uh, PhD in international relations, his, uh, and, and his BA is from uh, Georgetown, and he holds a Master in Public Policy from uh, Harvard, under, under credentials, as you can see. Uh, and he's also a contributing editor of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. Again, so am I. We run in the same circles, apparently. And uh, there is a research fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So please join me in welcoming Paul Bell. Well, I appreciate the chance to see you come to IWP and uh, talk about uh, my new book, American Power and Liberal Order, um, and I'd like to thank IWP uh, because uh, um, IWP is actually now the only institution that's had me give a talk on, on both of my academic books. Uh, I was here just a year ago to talk about uh, armed state building, so thank you all. Uh, I really am deeply, deeply honored uh, to have, uh, have the chance to speak here now uh, for the second time and uh, talk about this book. Um, I have published uh, in a variety of places, and uh, actually, Professor Owens, I don't know if you know the story here, but the piece I published with Orbis last year, it was called uh, On Strategy, Grand and Mundane, and that actually started life as an appendix to this book. Uh, so I wrote it, it's a 5,000 or so word piece on the nature of grand strategy, what it is, how you define it, and its difference between kind of non-grand strategy and grand strategy. And the editor uh, looked at my whole book and said, this book is fantastic. Just cut 15,000 words and look good. Uh, so uh, sadly, the first thing to go was that appendix, but I'm very grateful for the chance to, to, to have it published. 
and that it did see the light of day, and I hope it's been useful to some scholars. Um, so I do approach this subject as both a practitioner uh, as well as a scholar. Uh, Professor Owens was uh, kind enough to recite some of my, uh, my previous professional experience. Uh, he mentioned that I served on the National Security Council staff as a director for Afghanistan and Pakistan. I was actually there for both the Bush administration and the Obama administration. Uh, so having served on the NSC, working on Afghanistan under two presidents, I can confidently say, it's my fault. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but I do look forward to the new administration um, actually saying the word Afghanistan. I think that would be a, a wonderful start uh, on the path to having a policy towards America's longest war. That's not, a, that's not a partisan criticism. I would be saying the same thing right now if we had a different president in office. It was remarkable to me that we had a presidential election with two candidates for commander-in-chief, neither of whom ever mentioned America's longest war, that we're still fighting in which they would inherit upon election. Uh, I, I was glad to see um, uh, General um, Allen, uh, the current commanding general out there, actually give testimony in Congress about the war in Afghanistan just a few days ago. Uh, so, so uh, I'd be happy to talk more about that if you want during the Q&A time. Subtitle of my book is uh, A Conservative Internationalist Grand Strategy. Internationalist. So I, I joke, I tell people that I spent the last four or five years writing this book and it turns out that I wrote a book rebutting Donald Trump's foreign policy. Right? I didn't set out to do that. Uh, I had no expectation that Donald Trump would be president when I first started this book. Uh, I was uh, self-consciously working on sort of learning the lessons of history, of all of American diplomatic history, with, a, with particular reference to the post-Cold War era and the post-9-11 era. And I was reflecting on the Bush administration's foreign policy, which I, <coughs> and on the Obama administration's foreign policy. And that was really what was on my mind. But as I kind of developed the argument of the book, it was a, I, I came to this internationalism. And now we have, uh, I think, a nationalist president. Um, so despite the fact that this book was written more or less in response to kind of Bush and Obama, especially Obama, it turns out to be also a response, I think, to President Trump and what we're going to see in the years going forward. Of course, there's a great debate about what a nationalist foreign policy actually means, uh, civic nationalism versus ethnic nationalism. I think it's clear that the administration thinks that nationalism means this, that America is so great, we're practically Russia. Now, that's how awesome we are. Okay, that's my only cheap shot against the Trump administration. Uh, I, will, uh, I will try to draw, draw some contrast with what, what I think is going to be the Trump foreign policy as I go through this argument. Uh, but uh, again, it's not, the book is not really about uh, the Trump administration, um, and he, he only gets, I think, one passing mention in the text. Uh, this was written primarily before last year's election with a few updates uh, throughout the year. So I was uh, trying to learn the lessons of history which is a good thing, right? I think we all try to do that. I think historically informed foreign policy is a good thing. Uh, I think President Obama was trying to learn the lessons of history. I think his foreign policy took shape as an effort to learn the lessons of the recent past and not repeat the mistakes of the past. Uh, we've all heard George Santayana's famous <coughs> that those who ignore the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat them. Uh, in doing so, I think President Obama inclined towards a grand strategy of restraint. I say inclined towards because I, it's very difficult to pin down or, or attach one label to the Obama administration. He spoke like a liberal internationalist. He spoke the same language, the same rhetoric as liberal internationalist presidents for decades. So he sounds a lot like Jimmy Carter. He sounds a lot like Woodrow Wilson. Uh, in some contexts, he can even sound a little bit like Ronald Reagan. Although the, the tactics, are, the, the means of pursuing foreign policy are very different. He spoke the language of uh, freedom, democracy, human rights, America as the city on the hill. Uh, that's the rhetoric he used. But if you look at his choices, if you look at American foreign policy behavior, if you look at deployment decisions, if you look at budgetary expenditures, it paints a different picture. The picture it paints is one of restraint, one of even retrenchment. Uh, and you see this in a number of ways in the Obama administration. And let, let me just kind of go through this quickly, again, as kind of backdrop, before I kind of launch into the main argument of my book, because the main argument is, in some senses, a response to what we saw in the Obama administration and earlier. In the Obama administration, his grand strategy, not the rhetoric, but the behavior, was one, I think, of some restraint, some retrenchment. He would say, maybe, 
realism and prudence. I think that's what his defenders and apologists would say. That's the, how, how they describe it. Uh, Derek Chalet has a book out called The Long Game, in which he um, praises it. Derek Chalet was in the Obama administration in the Defense Department, I think Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Uh, and he praises Obama for his kind of prudence and balance for playing the long game, for kind of looking at America's long-term positioning. Uh, and it, I disagree with that. Um, so to take one example, uh, I, I think the easy criticism to make is true that the Obama administration um, uh, ended America's military engagement in Iraq in 2011 in an unhelpful way, or perhaps with unhelpful haste. Uh, with hindsight, we can all come to perhaps an agreement, maybe, uh, we can all agree about the, uh, maybe it was not wise to have gotten into Iraq in the first place. But President Obama, Senator Obama, and then President Obama always said we should get out of Iraq as responsibly as we got into it irresponsibly. But with hindsight, it seems that he did not do that. Uh, that, that having left Iraq in 2011 without a stay-behind force, without, it seems, working terribly hard uh, to negotiate a stay-behind force in Iraq, that it left a power vacuum in the Middle East, uh, and into which stepped both Iran and the Islamic State, um, the jihadist groups that had been almost defeated by the surge in Iraq in 2007 and 2008, were able to reconstitute, uh, they were able to reflag themselves as the Islamic State, declare a caliphate, and assume uh, control over a large swath of Iraq and Syria, of course, also taking advantage of the civil war that broke out in Syria at the same time. <coughs> uh, that's an example of Obama's instinct for restraint, having pulled out of Iraq, and not left a uh, state behind force, that led pretty directly to bad consequences in the region and for the world and the United States for American security. Um, I'll, uh, another way you see the same story of restraint that led to bad consequences was in the Obama administration's policy towards Afghanistan. Here it's a complicated story because I think he started off on the right foot, because uh, that's when I was there. Uh, he, uh, he did order more troops into the breach. That was a good thing. Uh, first uh, 21,000 in early 2009, and then 30,000 more later on that year. And it, there, was, that, there was widespread bipartisan consensus that that needed to happen. Obama campaigned on that. McCain campaigned on that in 2008. No one disagreed that Afghanistan needed more resources. Now, by the way, you'll sometimes hear today, you'll sometimes hear people say that Obama came into office promising to get out of Iraq and Afghanistan. That's not true. I'm old enough to remember that he promised to win the war in Afghanistan. He actually promised to escalate the war in Afghanistan. So just a little footnote there, uh, not to let history be rewritten. So Obama made a couple of good uh, moves towards Afghanistan, but he undercut it in a few ways as well. Uh, I think that President Obama never settled on an effective, coherent strategy. Uh, he wanted the best of both worlds, both he wanted the results of a larger-scale counterinsurgency democratization campaign, but he wanted it on the cost, the budget, of a pared-down counterterrorism operation that targeted al-Qaeda and the levels. And as a result, there was always a tension between those two approaches. President Obama also undermined the mission there by um, un underfunding the civilian reconstruction. He promised to uh, increase civilian reconstruction funding, and he did that once from 2009 to 10, and then he cut reconstruction funding in Afghanistan every year of his presidency after 2010. And that says to me a lot more than the one-time increase from 2009 to 2010. And then the third way that President Obama undermined the mission was, of course, the announced withdrawal deadline. Uh, President Obama spent almost his entire presidency talking about getting out of Afghanistan. Every time he talked about Afghanistan, it was about getting out of Afghanistan. And that had a <coughs> profoundly negative psychological consequence on the war that undercut the military progress that we were actually making in 2010, 11, and 12. Um, happy to talk about this in much greater detail during the q and if you want. This is a, a case I know well, and uh, perhaps my, my third or fourth book will be on just this. It will be a case study of Afghanistan. That's another example of Obama's instinct for restraint. We can see it in other ways as well. We can talk about Syria and uh, the red line incident, where he announced a red line and then decided not to enforce it. Uh, but we see it more broadly. Um, the United States' military posture abroad, and I'll talk about later why this is important, the military posture is an instrument of diplomacy. It's an instrument for giving weight and seriousness to everything we do in the world. But our military posture is actually smaller now than it was in 2001. So, so never mind 
de the deployment forward for Iraq and Afghanistan and then the withdrawal from Iraq and Afghanistan. Actually, Obama's withdrawal has gone further than just pulling the troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan. We have something like 50,000 fewer troops abroad all around the world than we did in 2001 before 9-11. Uh, so President Obama's instinct for restraint has gone beyond just Iraq and Afghanistan. Our foreign affairs budget uh, has shrunk by about a third over the Obama tenure. Uh, of foreign assistance as a whole, and also, specifically, democracy assistance. Uh, President Obama's uh, administration did not give as much uh, financial assistance to the infrastructure of democracy around the world uh, as his predecessors. He cut the budget for democracy assistance around the world. Uh, and arguably didn't do enough, or didn't do much, to resist uh, the uh, sort of democratic decline we've seen over the past decade. Uh, as uh, democratic governments uh, were sometimes overthrown in Mali, uh, in Thailand. Uh, I would say that President Obama didn't do a whole lot uh, regarding the war in Ukraine as well. And of course, President Obama's counterterrorism policy itself, global counterterrorism policy, would be another example of his instinct for restraint. Uh, as he seemed to favor, um, outside of Afghanistan, he seemed to favor the light footprint, the alleged drone campaign, drones and special forces. That seemed to be his favorite tool over the duration of his presidency, and I'd say that ended up being his favorite tool in Afghanistan as well after the withdrawal started. Uh, and uh, there's lots of things to say about that. Number one, it just hasn't been effective, right? His pared-down counterterrorism only policy has not, in fact, contained jihadist groups worldwide. Uh, under his watch, the Islamic State grew. Under his watch, the Taliban are resurgent. Under his watch, um, I would say Al-Qaeda, the central Al-Qaeda node, has uh, more operational freedom, more, uh, more safe haven in South Asia, in sort of the AFPAC borderlands, than at any time since, you know, I'll say that he did shrink the safe haven temporarily in 2010, 11, 12, but, but that's all gone, all that progress is gone. There's also something troubling, almost morally troubling, if the most visible aspect of our foreign policy are drones, and if our counterterrorism policy condemns much of the rest of the world to an endless state of war because it's too inconvenient for us to do to fix the long-term conditions that lead to that endless state of war. Enough about President Obama's uh, strategy. I, I, my, 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 the, the picture I'm painting here is of an administration that has an instinct for restraint and even retrenchment. He tried to learn the lessons of history. To him, I think his administration, History was the Bush administration. Bush administration tried big, large-scale, expensive counterinsurgency democratization campaigns. They thought that doesn't work. Let's not do that anymore. Let's let's do the other thing. So again, I don't fault anybody for trying to learn the lessons of history. But uh, Robert Jervis, the great uh, Robert Jervis, um, a political scientist, uh, has uh, responded to George Santayana. He says, "Look, okay, I, I get it. Those who do not remember the mistakes of the past, we can never repeat them." But you know what? Those who do remember the mistakes of the past are condemned to make the opposite mistake. Right? That's our tendency as human beings. If you, if you learn from the past, if you learn from the past, you're just going to swing at, in the opposite direction and make the opposite mistake. <coughs> and I think that is, what, uh, that is my, my criticism of the Obama administration. They overlearned the, the lessons of history. They overlearned the mistakes of the Bush administration. And they ended up making the opposite mistake. When the United States should have engaged and stayed forward, they withdrew. They exercised restraint when the United States should have exercised leadership. Uh, the Obama administration uh, retrenched when it should have engaged. Why should we engage? Why should we lead? Why should the United States have a forward presence in the world? What is it that Obama got wrong? And what is it that I think Trump is going to get wrong as well? I think, I think in history we're going to see continuity between Obama and Trump in their foreign policy. I think we're going to see that Obama started a trend towards restraint that Trump probably is going to kind of go on steroids. Right? That's my guess about the direction of foreign policy under the Trump administration. It will make Obama look like internationalist by, uh, an internationalist by comparison. Why should we engage? Why should we stay forward? Why should we uh, lead? Well, the central argument of my book uh, is, um, is an internationalist argument, right? America's national security interests are inextricably entwined with the national security interests of other countries around the world. 
particularly other countries that look at the world in the same way that we do, other countries that believe the same things that we believe, other countries that kind of hold the same values that we have. Uh, so I'm saying roughly other democratic countries. Uh, our national security is entwined with the national security of other democratic countries around the world. Um, because uh, democratic countries uh, don't fight each other, democratic countries tend to view the world in the same terms, we tend to perceive the same threats, we tend to perceive the same opportunities. We tend to trade together, innovate together, produce together, uh, and uh, the, 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 uh, the community of nations made up by participant states in this liberal order uh, is characterized by ordered liberty, by prosperity, by uh, greater respect for human dignity, uh, by any number of measures that, that paint the picture as a human flourishing. I use that word there, liberal order. Liberal order is the heart of my book here. Uh, it is a culture of ordered liberty among nations. A culture of ordered liberty among nations. Uh, what I mean is, uh, I'd say world politics, or international politics, or international order, it's an emergent property of the international social system, so to speak. Uh, the international social system is the patterned interrelationships among all the states in the world and all the other international actors in the world, like international organizations. It's constructed by centuries of precedent, by thousands of treaties, and by all the interactions among states and non-state actors. It's the culture of the international social system. And that culture can be characterized by, uh, by our norms and values, or by other countries' norms and values. And I think that it's better when it's governed by, or informed, or shaped by our values. That is to say, liberal values. Uh, so it is good when liberalism shapes the culture of world order. That's the abstract argument at the heart of this book in chapters 1 and 4. Uh, and I tore through it super fast. So if you want, we can talk about it in greater length in Q&A, or read chapters 1 and 4. Uh, so, I think that President um, Trump would hear that argument, and, and uh, I'm using him as an illustrative, uh, so he's a nationalist, right, so he wouldn't agree with that. I'm using him as an illustrative uh, uh, opponent. Right? I think anybody, I think Rand Paul would disagree with this. I think that uh, quite a lot of, probably quite a lot of the Democratic Party would disagree with it. Today, quite a lot of the Republican Party would disagree with it, to the extent they're signing up with Donald Trump's foreign policy. Um, the, the, the emerging prevailing wisdom says liberal order is a bunch of nonsense. That's a bunch of abstract ideals. Uh, and it's, um, it's, it's an invention, a pointy-handed academic, that has no real cash value, that it doesn't actually do anything for America. And, here's particularly the Trump critique, our investment in liberal order is expensive, I, I see no tangible benefit we get from it. We've been getting a bad deal, right? Everybody else is free riding. We've been providing public goods to the rest of the world uh, while running huge trade deficits and, and, and federal deficits. We should stop. We should stop this investment in something that doesn't really exist and gives us no benefits. All right, I think that's the, the, the critics' uh, criticism of this. And, and, and my argument is simply that liberal order is not just a fancy Thing, not just an invention, and it's not, I'm not making the argument primarily or exclusively on moral grounds either that we should just do this selflessly. No, I think it's actually a very selfish thing to do, to invest in liberal order. Because liberal order is the outer perimeter of American security. Liberal order is the outer perimeter of American security. I'll say it one more time. Liberal order is the outer perimeter of American security. I repeat it, I repeat it in the book several times, I think that's the core of the argument. If you conceive of our security merely as our territorial integrity, our physical survival, and our political independence, if that's all you mean by security, then we can demobilize almost the entire American military. And we can retreat to Fortress America. And we can raise up big walls around us and say, we don't care about the rest of the world. And that is, that's, that's the picture at the far end of Trump's foreign policy. He's not getting anywhere there you know, right now. But I think that's kind of the worldview that his nationalist foreign policy embodies. Uh, but, if, but I think 
security isn't just that. I think security is more than just our physical survival, our territorial independence, uh, 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 political independence. I think our, our security is also our way, of, our way of life. I think our security is our ability to do the things that we want to do without great hindrance from the rest of the world. I think our security also means our prosperity. I think that means a, a relatively open trading regime so we can trade and, and continue to build wealth for ourselves and others, by the way. I think it also means a relatively open world where people can travel with relative freedom, where they can travel and do stuff, uh, whether that's go to school in another country or share their religion in another country uh, or carry out joint scientific uh, uh, endeavors with scientists in other countries. We take these things for granted, but 150 years ago, you couldn't do that. Right? 150, 200 years ago, those kind of norms that we take for granted, that people can generally travel you know, uh, with relative ease, that's actually kind of a new thing in the world. That's a relatively new thing in world history. And I think it's a good thing. I think that liberal order, where we can travel, where we can trade, where we can speak, communicate, and exchange across international boundaries, is, is a good thing. And it protects the kind of life and the kind of values that we hold, uh, we hold dear. So that's liberal order. That's what it is, that's why it's important, and that's why it's part of American security. When we invest in liberal order, we're investing in that, that world, that uh, way of life, that system of values, that shape of a world informed by our norms. And all of that is good. You can't put a price tag on it. Uh, it's, the question isn't how much does liberal order cost, the question is, what kind of world do we live in? If we live in a world, as described by Trump, then no amount of investment in liberal order makes any sense at all. We should, in fact, just cut it off and divest. But if the world is, as I've described it, then we absolutely should sustain our investment in liberal order. That's absolutely the case. Now, having sketched out this argument, this case for liberal order, uh, I anticipate a few other objections. Um, isn't this what got us into trouble in Vietnam? Isn't this what got us into trouble in Iraq? Doesn't this lead to utopianism? Isn't this just unreconstructed Wilsonianism? Aren't you, aren't I, uh, falling prey to the trap of kind of a messianic, utopian, crusading, liberal superpower? Well, that's actually the criticism I have against liberal internationalists. I think that's all true of them. And I say John Kerry is a, was a liberal internationalist. Uh, and, and again, Obama spoke like one, didn't quite act like one. This is the criticism I lay against the Wilson administration. Absolutely. The Carter administration. Absolutely. There's a naivete about how the world really works amongst the liberal internationalists, which, which explains their failures and explains the utter mismatch between their ambitions and their achievements. They, they have an ambition for world peace. And they think you can get to world peace by signing a piece of paper. Right? I think the Iran nuclear deal is a textbook case of a liberal internationalist endeavor. And it's going, I think it's going to fail uh, because it is naive. Uh, so what is conservative internationalism? And how does that avoid the trap of utopianism uh, and avoid the trap of a messianic foreign policy? Well, conservative internationalism tries to combine the, the insights and the strengths of both realism and liberalism. Pardon me while I, this is going to be academic, you know, geek speak now. Um, realism and liberalism. Uh, I see a few nodding heads here. Yeah. So these are the broad camps in international relations scholarship. Uh, there's variations of each. There's structural realism, classical realism, and neo realism, and neo structural. Yeah. And then there's uh, liberalism and liberal institutionalism and liberal nationalism. Uh, I'm just going to treat them as two very broad camps. And, and I think that they both have some things right and some things wrong. I think that realists are correct that world politics is about power and that you have to look out for your interests and the world is largely anarchic. These are all true truths, which is why realism has a lot of explanatory power. Uh, you know, power balancing hasn't ended. The world is kind of becoming more multipolar. China and Russia and North Korea and Iran are, I think, balancing against the United States. They're balancing <laughs> uh, with economic investment, with military modernization, and with nuclear proliferation. When North Korea detonated a nuclear bomb in 2006, their first one, that was an act of balancing. Right? Uh, nuclear weapons are a crude sort of balancing against the United States. Uh, liberals take their insight way too far, 
and they're, they tend to be very dogmatic and inflexible about it. And they tend to be actually quite unrealistic in how they understand ideology, culture, identity, norms, values. Uh, for, for anybody who cares, my book ends up being a constructivist argument. Um, liberal internationalists at least understand the importance of, of, I think, some norms and values of democracy. Right? The democratic peace is real. It actually exists. That matters. And that should matter for how the United States does foreign policy. And uh, the liberal internationalists, therefore, understand the value of cooperative security arrangements among fellow liberal democracies. That's a great thing. Uh, but as I said before, I think liberal internationalists tend to be quite, quite naive uh, in how they try to pursue uh, their kind of utopian dreams of world peace. So conservative internationalism is a maybe a tempered internationalism. By the way, I didn't coin that phrase. A uh, professor at George Washington University named Henry Now wrote a book entitled Conservative Internationalism. Right, so I just uh, took it from him. I'd say it's still if I give him a footnote. Um, and, uh, and, he, and he speaks very eloquently about this. He thinks that the best exemplars of conservative international foreign policy are Ronald Reagan, uh, Harry Truman, so bipartisan, uh, and then he picks a few 19th century ones as well. Uh, so that gives you a good flavor of what it is. It's a more maybe hawkish or muscular version of liberal internationalism. And I'd say a bit more tempered by, by understanding the realities of power in the world. Um, you know, uh, at, the, the, the second half of my book is trying to apply these principles. And it's when you try to apply grand strategic principles that you really start to display what you actually believe. I read a dozen or more grand strategies, and I didn't understand the difference between any of them because they didn't actually apply themselves and didn't explain how the principles would work themselves out in actual situations. So I tried to, I tried to do that in the second half of my book. So, for example, I think the, one of the ways to limit our ambitions is to invest where, where it really counts, uh, where there's um, the predominant American interest at stake. Uh, so to, be, to translate this into very concrete terms, where is the bulk of the wealth, the power, and the danger in the world today? Where is the bulk of the wealth, power, and danger in the world today? And you can look at the distribution of global GDP. You can look at the distribution of military spending. Look at the distribution of nuclear weapon states, nuclear technology. And when I, when I pulled up the data, I kind of expected that globalization would have diffused wealth and power around the world, and, and I'd find some new thing to say. And actually, what I found is Europe and East Asia are still the concentration of the greatest bulk of wealth, power, and danger in the world. Uh, the, despite, a century, despite centuries of change and the growth of wealth around the world, it's still true that most of the wealth, most of the power, most of the military spending, most of the nuclear weapon states are in Europe and East Asia. And therefore, that's where American interests are most at stake. Uh, because those are the states that can trade with us and can kill us. Right? That matters. Uh, that, I think, is a helpful way of thinking through foreign policy challenges that can help limit our investment in places that maybe don't actually matter as much as we think they do. And here I'm talking about the Middle East. Okay, by the way, the third most important region is not the Middle East. It's actually South Asia. If you look at the numbers, South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and the other stands, they constitute a larger percentage of world population, a larger percentage of global GDP, a larger percentage of global military spending, uh, and a larger percentage of trade with the United States than the Middle East. So the Middle East is actually not that important. So when I, when I paint that picture, suddenly the war in Ukraine looks way more important than the war in Syria. Okay, the war in Syria, important, I get it, ISIS terrorism, but you know what? Pakistan has more terrorist groups than Syria does. And by the way, those terrorist groups in Pakistan have actually tried to attack the United States. ISIS, you can debate, okay, they've inspired a few lone wolves, but it's the groups in South Asia, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, that have actually operationally planned and trained people to come and attack the United States. So again, this is a uh, sort of a decision tool that helps us think, does this matter to the United States or not? Should we invest lots of resources in it or not? And, I, you know, looking at the concentrations of wealth, power, and danger, I say, war in Ukraine, so important, we should have been investing in that a lot more, a lot earlier. And that would be a big criticism we <coughs> have against uh, the Obama administration, is that they really, have, they really did, a, I think, a poor job responding to Russian aggression. Uh, I think the Trump administration is probably going to make the same mistake and not, not properly respond to Russian aggression. Uh, just a hunch. Um, <clears throat> By contrast, I'm more conflicted about Syria. 
I think, I think five years ago, we may have had a window of opportunity to do a lower cost intervention that would have actually made a difference and maybe prevented the absolute catastrophe that's unfolded there. Today, I just don't think, I'm not convinced such a window exists. I'm not convinced we have the opportunity to do any kind of intervention in Syria that is cost effective, that, that is fairly cheap and effective at, um, effective at sort of degrading ISIS or overthrowing Assad or setting up refugee uh, safe zones. I just don't, convince me there's a policy option here that makes sense and that's cost effective, that, that is, uh, justifies the investment of American resources. I just don't know that such an option exists. I really need to consider uh, if you've got an idea, but I just don't know that um, we have such an opportunity. So again, this I, I use this as an illustration to suggest how to think through relative foreign policy priorities, what a conservative internationalist framework would suggest for these kind of priorities. Last thing I'll say, uh, and um, yeah, last thing I'll say is um, in thinking through this framework on sort of conservative internationalism and all that, I uh, I think it is worthwhile to include some reflection on kind of moral issues, which is not often done in grand strategy. You don't often find the academics kind of thinking, hey, it's this right or is this wrong? Uh, I just find myself incapable of not, you know, I, I just can't not ask those questions. And this is uh, dovetails with the argument from selfishness, right? So I've laid out an argument for why selfishly we should invest in the liberal order. But I would also say, selflessly, we should do the same thing. Uh, because the United States uh, is still the most powerful country in the world, and whenever you have concentrations of power, it behooves us to think about how to use that carefully and wisely and well. Right? We all want to see powerful actors act carefully and well. And uh, wouldn't it be great if those with power used it uh, not just not just selfishly, but also um, in a way that was sensitive to the impact of that power on other people. Right? So, um, so throughout the book, I've scattered quotations from Reinhold Niebuhr, whom Obama said was his favorite philosopher. I'm not sure Obama understood him right. Uh, well, I mean, it, I don't want to be snarky about it, but, but when I read Niebuhr carefully, I, I, Niebuhr warned against uh, a crusading hubris, absolutely true, but he also warned against passivity. He also warned against dereliction of duty, of abdicating our responsibility to use our power wisely, well, and carefully. Uh, he, he, he encouraged the United States, and he was writing in the 1940s, he encouraged the United States to use its power in such a way that was sensitive to everyone on whom that power impinged. That's almost a, almost a direct quote. Um, and that means because we're the gorilla in the room, we affect everybody. And so we ought to have a kind of a global mindset when we think about how our power is used. Okay, I just say global mindset, so now you're thinking I'm a globalist, and I'm one of those, you know, Davos elites, right? Look, globalism is, is just, as I wrote the other day, it's essentially the victory of Western ideals, right? right? The United States and our European allies uh, constructed this liberal order that has been a good thing kind of for everybody. And the genius of the liberal order is that it's relatively open and easy to get into by other non-Western countries. Uh, so I'm not being sort of um, chauvinist about this. I'm, I'm saying, having built this thing and having made it open and available to everyone, let's upkeep it and let's keep it open so that all those, uh, any kind of aspiring state can join it. And uh, that's good selfishly. It's also good selflessly. It's good for us to be cognizant of how we affect the rest of the world. I think that's a, that's a good thing. I'd rather have those ideals and run the risk of hypocrisy than not have ideals. Would you want to live in a world where the United States did not try to have some ideals govern its power? I'm happy to take your questions. Yes? On the one hand, uh, you said on the other hand, you said his policies is retrenchment. I think he's, if anything, I would say, you know, jurisprudence, right? If you say retrenchment, I would argue that it was a reaction or trying to make up for the extreme failure of the Bush administration, the water he got us in, the deficit he got us in, and the collapse of the market in 2008. So, in other words, Obama put 
realism, national security, and American interests first. If he retrenched, the, the, the amount of economically he would have saved would have to go domestically, and that's what he did. So why would you blame him for that? So I, I He's think, reacting to the failure of the previous administration. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That, that led us into this deficit that we can't get out. No, I, I think you and I agree on what Obama did. He was reacting to Bush, and he was exercising more restraint. I think that's a. I think we both economically agree. is yeah. thinking about America. That's right. Um, and my my I guess my argument is about whether we should think about short term or long term cost benefit analysis. I think that his view is insufficiently short term. He was thinking. Uh, the war in Iraq costs so much money, I need to end it now and save money. And, well, look, over the long run, weigh that, weigh that dollar figure against the cost of total chaos in the Middle East and the rise of ISIS and Russian and Iranian sort of hegemony now in the region. That's the cost we have paid through Obama's exercise of restraint. So let, you know, put it another way. Uh, Obama wanted to... Uh, limit our liability, so to speak, in the Middle East. He wanted to um, uh, shrink our, our economic investment in the region. Got it. But hidden in that was a pretty large opportunity cost and a, and a large cost of future instability, which is what he did not take into account. He did not believe it would lead to such future instability. Lots of other people warned it would, but he didn't believe it would happen. And so we are now paying that cost. And I think over the long run, He's actually ended up sort of costing us more, so to speak. Again, he can't attach a dollar figure to these things, but I think his foreign policy has been more costly in the instability and in the sort of lost American influence. Yeah. Well, for a conservative internationalist, what's the role of public diplomacy within the constraints of, uh, of military engagement? Uh, not in crisis situations, of course, like Syria or North Korea but more particularly uh, regarding China or Russia, uh, is that an under-leveraged resource uh, for American foreign policy? So your question was, should we do more public diplomacy? Yeah, and how would it be applied by a conservative internationalist as opposed to a liberal internationalist? Uh, okay, so yes, it's good, we should do it. Um, I think probably the difference is that liberal internationalists might think that public diplomacy is sufficient, and a conservative internationalist would say it's necessary, but not sufficient. Right? You, it's it's a building block, but you need a lot of other tools of national power. Um, uh, you know, a liberal internationalist. I'm going to steal this line from Adam Garfinkel. Uh, tends to believe that if you find just the exact right words, you know, the exact right words, and you arrange them in the perfect sentence. And then you translate them, and then you and then you broadcast them to the perfect audience. Then suddenly, like our foreign policy problem will be solved. All right, obviously, that's not true. Um, do I want to have perfect sentences, you know, broadcast to the world? Absolutely. And I think it's much easier for us to pursue our interests if we have such good public diplomacy. But let's not kid ourselves that that's sufficient by itself. Um, uh, the reason the United States does a, a poor job with public diplomacy and other civilian tools of national power, I think there's a couple of interlocking things. One is Congress. Congress, uh, American foreign policy might be militarized, but if it's militarized, that's because the military is the only institution Congress adequately funds. Right? It's not as if the military is like on steroids and wants to take over and launch a coup and militarize everything. They don't want that, but they've been not well-funded, and the State Department and AID have been just starved for decades, right? So that will lead to militarized foreign policy when the military is the only capable organization. Uh, I worked with the NSC staff a couple of years. I worked with State and Defense and USAID, and, and I uh, um, respect those who work in the State Department for their public service and the desire to serve. I wish they had uh, greater backing. I wish they had uh, better resources. Um, <clears throat> But let me say this as well. It's not just Congress and their unwillingness to fund. It's, there's also a culture in the State Department and in kind of American officialdom that is unhelpful. Um, oh boy, and here I might uh, get really controversial. If there's, if there's merit to nationalism, I'd actually prefer the word patriotism. <coughs> but if there's merit to patriotism, it is loving your country 
and, and being, I'd say, relatively unapologetic. Yes, of course we make mistakes. We should apologize when we do. But relatively unapologetic and, and, uh, and being capable of weaving a winsome argument for why your country is a good country. You know, I don't think the State Department does that. Right? I really don't think they do that a whole lot. Uh, I think there's a culture of embarrassment at our own country sometimes. Uh, and that can be extraordinarily unhelpful. Um, so I'd like to see just more patriotism in the State Department and in other um, agencies as well. I think that would be a good thing. Our public diplomacy will be ineffective if it sounds um, embarrassed at our own national identity. <coughs> like, we should be comfortable in our own skin. Um, the uncertain trumpet, uh, you know, heralds no troops. Uh, the uncertain salesman moves no product, right? So a little bit of a little bit of sort of comfort and, and even pride in our country is a good thing, and uh, and it should be evidenced in our departments and agencies and our colleges and universities as well. You didn't ask that, but I said it. So. <laughs> uh, and by the way, please uh, introduce yourselves and let me know who you are and where you're from. Uh, my name is Justin Margolis. I'm from Montreal, and um, my question is: is if it is good when America leads the liberal order? Why is the USA often the only Western country to not fully participate in these structures? Be the ICC, the ICJ, yeah. why are they the asterisks if yeah. they want to be the leader? Yeah, so um, by the way, the liberal order has many pillars to stand on, uh, thankfully. I don't think liberal order depends exclusively on American leadership. It's not going to die if we just like kind of falter on the back step. Europe, uh, Japan, mm -hmm. India, actually two dozen democracies in Africa. So there's uh, a lot of pillars for liberal order. And I don't think, by, by calling for American leadership, that doesn't mean we have to do everything all the time. Uh, and it doesn't mean we have to be the ones to um, uh, say what needs to be. It's okay if other countries do stuff. Like I uh, agree that NATO partners should pay their fair share. Right? Every president, every Secretary of Defense has said that. Uh, they haven't said that we will moderate our commitment to NATO. I don't, how do you moderate a commitment to NATO? You, it's like, can you be moderately pregnant? No. Right? You're either fully, you're either going to be committed to Article 5 of the NATO Treaty or not. Um, okay, that wasn't your question. Uh, should we not participate in the institutions? So, uh, international institutions can be useful, sometimes. But again, a liberal internationalist thinks that they're always necessary and they're always good. And I'm a little bit more skeptical towards that. I think that they can be useful, but not always. And I think that... Um, not participating in an international institution is not a death blow to liberal order. Liberal order is mostly upheld by power, not by institutions. Institutions work when they are reflective of underlying power realities. The law of the sea treaty, yeah, we should sign that thing. I mean, look, Henry Kissinger and Madeleine Albright don't agree on much, but they agree we should sign the law of the sea treaty and, and ratify it. Uh, so yes, that's one that we should absolutely participate in. And by the way, we actually uphold all of its uh, uh, principles anyway. But things like the Convention on the Rights of the Child, that's totally unenforceable. Uh, it's on a difficult, culturally contested topic. And I think those kind of pieces of paper are effectively meaningless. They're morally aspirational statements that don't affect state behavior. So why bother? And what they, what they would be, if the Senate ever took them up, is a cultural wedge issue. It's a tool in America's culture wars. Don't you believe in the rights of the child? Well, why do you hate children? We don't need that. We just don't need that. So I'm happy to not participate in those because I think they don't actually mean much. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I would love to see us uh, develop teeth for, I always get it mixed up, the, the Chem Weapons Convention and the Bioweapons Convention. One is actually very effective and meaningful and the other one isn't. Does anybody remember which is which? Chem is the good one. Is the hate, yeah. yeah, so so the bio convention needs more teeth. Once it has teeth, hey, let's sign up. But right now it's kind of meaningless. So take it on a case by case basis. Yeah. So in the back. Uh, Nathan Piam, an alumni here at IWP. Um, I just want to say first thanks for coming. I really appreciate the talk. Probably saw us nodding back here. Mostly because uh, I agree with most of the things that you said. Uh, you, but it's not all. Kind of <laughs> but you seem to kind of get it, and it is what I'm going to define as the consensus. This seemed to used to be a consensus within the country on the grand strategy at least that we could debate operation or tactical level differences, but there was consensus on the grand strategy. Um, and I, my question is kind of in, in two parts. First, you mentioned the pillars, 
Um, uh, I'd specifically like you to, to kind of state what those pillars are. In my mind, there's four. Um, there's uh, free market international economics backed up by the military. There's diplomacy, and then there's social cultural pluralism. Um, but but you know, if you agree or disagree, or if you have more, let me know. Yeah. Um, and then this is the second part. So the first time since 1945, the well, right now seems to be the first time we've had a president that has a disdain for all four of those orders. Um, what does it mean for strategic thinkers? I'm specifically asking about strategic thinkers in the National Security Council, the Department of Defense where I work, and the other agencies. What should we be doing right now when our commander-in-chief has a disdain for literally what our agencies have been defending for 60 years? Yeah. Especially when half of his supporters, um, specifically talking about Republican half of his supporters have not only a disdain for it, but find it anti-American to believe in those pillars. Yeah. So, uh, what is liberal order? Page thirteen. Politically, liberal order favors liberal democracies, the rule of law, civil liberties. Economically, liberal order means capitalism, relatively free trade, and low trade barriers. Could be flexible on that. Uh, 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 freedom of the seas, neutral rights, the sanctity of contract, peaceful rule-based dispute adjudication. Internationally, liberal order means non-aggression, territorial inviolability, with limited exceptions for humanitarian intervention, and favors intergovernmental cooperation on issues of global concern. That just means institutions. Um, those are the three pillars of liberal order. And then the question is, how do you build it? That's when I'd add in military strength and things like that. All instruments of national power. Uh, so that's my best definition of what constitutes liberal order. It's those norms, those values, politically, economically, internationally. Uh, now, your, your second question was, you know, what do you do about Trump, or how do you think about Trump? Uh, We're on the line of how do people that work in this field, yeah. how do we handle the situation? Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm working on an article right now on nationalism, uh, Trump's nationalism, what it is, uh, where, where do we see it in his policies, trade, immigration, foreign policy, and kind of how, how damaging is it? Right? So uh, I've been chewing on something kind of related to your question for a while. Um, <clears throat> look, uh, to put all my cards on the table, uh, I was very uh, eager and early to call myself a never-Trump Republican. Right? I signed the War on the Rocks letter last March, uh, open letter from Republican national security leaders against Trump. And I reread the letter recently. I'm still happy to have signed. I'm very proud to have signed it. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't change anything about it. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I wrote several and tweeted a lot about Trump. Paul D. Miller, too. Paul on Twitter. <laughs> and, and, and have alternated between hair on fire, hysterical, the, the sky is falling, the end of the republic is not, to a, a slightly more moderated, like, you know, Checks and balances, uh, we, we can survive. Look, the Republic survived Andrew Jackson. Uh, the Republic survived also 11 straight years of Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. And they, they were nationalists, but they were criminals. Uh, and they were also you know, variations in incompetence there, too. So there's something to be said for a system of government in which the supreme executive um, is nonetheless hemmed in as the president is. Um, look at the first month of Trump's presidency, uh, how, how rocky it's been, how difficult it's been. It's kind of a good sign that his inclinations can't just go unchecked. They are daily checked by a press. By the way, the press is, of course, biased. Of course they are. But at least in this case, their bias is kind of offsetting his bias and his temperament. Um, and uh, you'd see that the courts have stepped in. I'm not a lawyer. Can't comment too much with too much um, expertise on the executive order. But at least you know the judiciary is there. You know they can they can step in. Uh, I'd love to see Congress also play a role in this. I'd love to actually see them launch a serious congressional investigation of the Russia ties in the in the election last year. I don't see that happening. But look, let's imagine the midterm elections. I'm pretty confident in saying the Democrats are probably going to take back the House. And boy, howdy, they're going to rediscover the the congressional check on the executive then. Right? We're not seeing a whole lot of it now. Uh, so that's me with my sane hat on. Like, we can survive this. This is fine. He, he's, you know, he's a nationalist. I disagree with his foreign policy. I also am concerned about his temperament. 
I don't think he's, he's a really fit executive. He's not a good manager. So I could go on and on and on about the problems with Trump. You've all heard it before. Um, but, you know, every other day I wake up and say, it's going to be okay. On the other days, I'm sort of hair on fire worried. And the reason I'm worried is because I, I'm concerned about the depletion of America's civic education and social capital, which enables the rise of a Trump. And if it's not Trump, by the way, the next one, the next Trump is, is not going to be as, uh, pardon me, he's not going to be as uh, vulgar and, and crass. Right? It's been easy to dislike Trump because, because people who live inside the Beltway and do the stuff for a living are kind of off-put by his brash personality. But look, if you, if, you, if you find a highly polished, educated person who says the exact same thing as Trump, they'll get a lot more votes. And that's worrisome. That is really worrisome. Because it's the next guy who is more socially acceptable who will be able to push the system further. You, you probably saw David Frum's article, How to Build an Autocracy. Right? I think it's helpful to raise the warning flags. It's probably not Trump who's going to do that. It's going to be the next guy who's polished, who's more acceptable, who's more uh, welcomed by the elites, who will be able to do that? What, what did you just say? Mike Pence. Mike Pence, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't, no, I think Mike Pence is a pretty, pretty genuine small government guy. Can I, can I follow up with that? Yeah. Should those that are slightly terrified by, by Trump, uh, should we be, whatever way we can, pushing uh, Rubio or uh, Ruger or Ryan to, to take more of a Stance. Oh, gosh, you know, I don't envy Paul Ryan's position. Um, he, he's in the position of actually passing real conservative legislation for the first time since 1928. <laughs> so I get it, he's really eager to take advantage of this opportunity, and he has about an 18 month window to pass a couple of good laws. Uh, and uh, and he's, he's, he's walking the fence, uh, maybe the plank, but uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's in a tough spot. If I were him, I would be pushing back, but mostly behind closed doors. If you pick a fight with Donald Trump publicly, you know what happens. You know, you're on the receiving end of a Twitter flame, uh, and it, it will probably ruin your ability to have any kind of productive relationship with the guy. So push behind closed doors. Which is, I imagine what Paul Ryan is doing. Um, push behind closed doors, try to pass a few good laws, and in 18 months, everything's going to be different anyway. That's probably Paul Ryan's best look on. What do I know? Last year proved to me I know nothing about American politics. I mean, honestly, so who knows? By the way, I shouldn't assume everyone here, you know, agrees with me on Trump. So if you if you're here as a sort of Trump supporter, by all means, speak up, challenge me, ask a good question, go for it. Ren Rams, I'm a student here. I'm from Arizona. Uh, what makes you think that the American electorate is going to be more receptive? to somebody who has polish, when in fact, that seems to have been what got Donald Trump elected was his brashness. I mean, perhaps living here in Washington, D.C., you're living in a bubble where articulate policy decisions and, and talking and debates are the norm, and the rest of the populace is not seeing it work. Yeah, so they're going to Donald Trump and saying, here's a guy that talks exactly different than what uh, our leadership is. And essentially what I'm saying is perhaps there's a crisis of confidence in the leadership of the United States. And I, if that's the case, I do not see a more polished, articulate person who enunciates Trump's nationalism being more effective than him. Perhaps at best they might be as uh, maybe just a few observations here. Look, Trump has the highest unfavorables of any president during this time in his presidency in the history of Poland. Um, he didn't win the popular vote, despite what he says. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, despite how widely disliked she was, won the popular vote by a healthy margin. Trump is actually quite unpopular nationally. I get it that in uh, his, with amongst his support base, he's quite popular. Yeah. And there's there's a segment of the population, probably about forty percent or less, that really likes the public personality he is. My guess is that will last for a short season, about 18 months, uh, and it will wear thin, the act will wear thin. People will just get tired of it, and they'll start to get disgusted with it, and as soon as he loses a few important political battles, his numbers will go down pretty fast. 
um, if he if he doesn't deliver on some of his promises, oh boy, you know that'll he'll just tank go crazy. The reason I think the next guy, the polished guy, will have more success is again look at the numbers. You know, Clinton beat him in popular vote. Look at Obama. You know, Obama fifty three percent, one of the most uh, decisive margins right, since Reagan. Um, there's there's still a nostalgia <coughs> for a Jack Kennedy figure, right? There's still an attraction to that. Uh, Reagan was incredibly polished and incredibly well-spoken. He was a, a gentleman in his public demeanor. He knew how to cultivate that kind of uh, that kind of public persona. So Trump uh, set aside his policies. Trump the persona is, I think, an aberration. And probably we're not going to see something quite like that, something Trump-shaped, uh, either at the national or the state or local level. I think he can do that because he's a reality TV star. He sold that brand his whole life. But I don't, I don't see that being a permanent strength. Nationalism may endure beyond the Trump personality. Yeah. Okay. So as you mentioned, uh, defending a liberal order ultimately for policy oh, yeah, comes down to yeah, <laughs> comes down to. Uh, it's a debate, it's an argument, right? You're having this usually across the table with somebody that disagrees with you. Um, you had mentioned that uh, you know you can't put a, a price to this. I would actually argue that you can, and it would be the entire cost in both financial and non-financial terms in, from 1900 to 1945, and death, destruction, blood, treasure, that was lost when you have a competing power structure in a multipolar world where there's no there's the American uh, hegemon, there's no Bretton Woods economic order, uh, there's no pluralist society that is actively engaged in and promoted uh, by Americans and their statesmen. Um, does it, it sounds to me like, like the play for statesmen is to, for American statesmen is to remind people of what the alternative is. Um, and do you think that that's an effective argument against uh, you know the people who are now Yes, and I think Vladimir Putin is making it much easier to make that argument these days. Um, you know, when in 2008, when Russia invaded uh, Georgia, John McCain said, "We are all Georgians." People kind of laughed at him. You know, like they thought that that was so antiquated, so anachronistic that McCain was trying to cut a Churchillian figure. And uh, people weren't buying it. Obama, very specifically, if you read the, that, that, the Obama Doctrine uh, essay in the Atlantic from a couple of years ago, he criticizes Churchillian rhetoric. You know, that kind of black and white Manichaean worldview puts us into trouble. Um, today, after uh, Ukraine and after the sort of meddling in the election last year, I think it might be a little bit easier to stand up and say, look at the world. And, and after ISIS, after the rise of ISIS, look at the world, look at what a disaster it is, look at how dangerous it is. Um, we need moral clarity, and we need leadership. I think maybe that argument is actually going to be a bit easier for somebody like Rubio to make, uh, or Ben Sass, uh, to make in, in 2020, particularly if the trend lines continue in the next four years. Yeah, that's my hope. Two questions are, what about Russia and what about China? <laughs> that's just the last question. Yeah. Um, I think that the greatest failing of the Bill Clinton administration was, uh, was essentially the president who lost Russia. I think that there was a window of opportunity in the 1990s to invest heavily in Russia, uh, to invest heavily in infrastructure democracy, to partner with Russia. And we tried. We, we took steps down that road. Um, 
but mostly on some security agreement stuff, uh, the CFP treaty, uh, and uh, some some nuclear cooperation stuff. But we, I think, we didn't do enough partnering with um, again investing in the infrastructure of democracy, and uh, that was I think Clinton's greatest failing. Uh, so today, no, I think we've lost the opportunity. That was a big fail. Window, the window's gone, and so we can't sort of nostalgically look back and say, how could we get Russia back in the world? That's not the challenge. The challenge is, how do you defeat Russia's attempts to undermine, subvert the world? I think that's the challenge today. And they're doing it in lots of different ways. Overtly, by invading neighbors. Um, slightly less overtly, by cyber-attacking neighbors. They did it in Estonia in 2007, and, uh, and more recently. They're doing it as well. Um, I. This is an article to be written by somebody. <coughs> I believe, uh, I speculate, with uh, perhaps not quite enough evidence, that Putin desires to delegitimize the, the norms of liberalism and democracy. That Putin wants to be the champion of anti-liberalism. Call it whatever you want. There's kind of nationalism or big C conservatism, or maybe it's orthodox, you know, Russian orthodoxy. Don't know, but I think that he would love to do whatever he can to make liberalism look ridiculous. I actually think that's what the election meddling was about. It wasn't necessarily about trying to actually put Trump in office. I think it was about just making democracy look stupid and inefficient and corrupt. And I think he's succeeding. I think that that's what a lot of people believe. You look at public opinion polls in Europe and the United States, young people increasingly don't believe democracy works or is worth it. And that's alarming. And I think Putin is cheering. So no, I don't think we can really work on incorporating them in a liberal order. We first have to essentially uh, put a wall in front of their ambitions, and then maybe hope for a post-Putin leadership to change those. Uh, China, um, I, I, I think there's nothing inevitably conflictual about our relationship with China. I think it can be, in theory, managed and managed well. Uh, I think Bush actually did this quite well. I think Obama did it okay. Um, it takes a very careful, calibrated mix of certain and states, right? You need to actually draw a line in the water and say no artificial islands, uh, things like that, while at the same time working very cooperatively on trade uh, and keeping the, 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 the line open on Taiwan, things like that. So like I said, I think the last two presidents actually managed the relationship pretty decently. We've recognized China's rising. We can't stop that. We don't really want to stop it, but we do want to um, arrange things so that China uh, is, is adequately respected and recognized without like, taking over hegemony over East Asia. That's bad. Uh, I'm pessimistic about the Trump administration. Just for everything else I've said, you know, uh, they, they tend to see things in a zero-sum way. Uh, I don't know that Trump has a temperament for that kind of careful diplomacy. Uh, I think that American allies in Asia and around the world are probably considering their options right about now. And this is this is the wrong time to have alliance fracture. Uh, and this gives China and Russia an opportunity to really kind of put their best foot forward and, and gain some new influence at our expense. Uh, and that's unfortunate. How do you expose, uh, how do you evaluate Phone call with Japan and, and uh, uh, his long time Yeah, well, we just uh, well, Why don't we talk about that afterwards? Oh. Yeah, I, I can't keep up the details and never look at oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but as I, as I said, I'm a little bit pessimistic about the Trump administration and uh, so we'll see. Please join me in uh, thanking. <laughs>